0: to this special episode of Dialogue Dilemmas. Today, I will be exploring a hot topic within the Chico Unified School District, which is how instruction would be given over the past year, whether in-person, virtually, uh, some combination thereof. I have three guests that I was able to interview. All three either currently have or have had children in the local school district. Two of them are school board members, and one is also a teacher. So to get started, let's go ahead and hear their introductions. Tom Lando is a teacher at a local charter school, a CUSD board member, and has worked for CUSD as a teacher and instructional aide. You grew up in Chico and then moved away to pursue uh, graphic design and then returned here and became a teacher. Yep. You're also um, a parent with uh, children in the local school system as well, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I have a daughter who is uh, at Butte right now and a son who is in kindergarten at Wildflower Charter School.
0: I just wanted to jump right in and ask you, is there anything you would like to share and tell me uh, so that the listeners can also know how did you end up on the school board and what um, background led you to, to that role?
2: So that probably goes back further than when you were born. But um, I uh, came to Chico in 1972 from Duke University to start my professional career as a sociologist here. And then um, I had a granddaughter uh, born in 1993 who was uh, a student in kindergarten at the time at Hooker Oak. I moved her to a Montessori private school. So when she was getting ready to go to the a public school again, so she hadn't been since kindergarten to start junior high, um, we discovered that they had been out of step with what the math curriculum was expected. They were mm-hmm. sort of not paying attention to that. And then at the same time, there was a big public hue and cry over a principal at one of the junior highs that caused a lot of conflict and so after sort of witnessing that conflict from a distance um, and because I had been the first female faculty trustee for the CSU at the state level and I'd had a lot of experience going to all of the 23 different universities in the CSU that was appointed by the governor. So it was a two-year term and my term was up. I decided that maybe I should invest my background in the CUSD because they were struggling with you know, this situation. So- When I ran was that? The, uh, it would have been, I think
0: 1999. Wow, that was and
2: when so, you first ran. So I ran and was elected and I'm now in my fourth term.
0: All right, so thank you again, Jordan, for <laughs> agreeing to be interviewed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you're the parent of three children in the Chico Unified School District, right?
3: Uh, I am a parent of three children. Two of them are Chico Unified kids, and one goes to Chico Country Day School.
0: Okay, which is a charter school, right?
3: Yes, yes. It does. It is under the umbrella of Chico Unified, but it is a uh, it's a public charter. Yeah, and kind actually, of I separate. Say, all of my kids went there um, until this year. My two younger ones, I moved over to Parkview School in Chico Unified this this spring.
0: So moved from Chico Country Day to a regular yeah. public school. Yeah, yeah, and all, all those decisions were based on um, how
3: how slowly things were moving with giving our kids instructional hours. So. Chico Country Day School was uh, one of the rare charter schools that moved, um, even that was offering uh, even less in person instruction time at the time we moved our kids.
0: While everyone is affected by dialogue or the lack thereof, I suspected that Tom Lando and Dr. Kathy Kaiser, as elected officials, might have a unique take on this subject. So we will start there. As you saw, the name of my podcast is Dialogue Dilemmas. And I'm guessing that as a public servant, you might be familiar with dilemmas and dialogue, like this not being a totally foreign concept. And I just wanted to see if you wanted to speak to that generally, like what are your thoughts on dialogue and what Um, dilemmas have you seen in our community around dialogue? (laughs)
1: Oh my goodness, we are just covered in dilemmas. Um, as a teacher and a language nerd, I always want to know what a lemma is. I mean, die, we have two of them. And the lemma is what? A, a question, a problem, a proposition. Um, at any rate, um, no, I'm really interested in, in the idea of, of creating a dialogue right now because it seems like, especially in the last two or three years, a lot of the partisanship um, and rancor that has kind of remained at the, the national level has finally seeped into mm-hmm. County and in Chico. And it's really interesting to see how people change both their political activities as that becomes true. Like you can see all the local political actors adapting and being more ready to, to argue and less ready to talk as that becomes mm-hmm. sort of the prevailing mode of what you have to do to win a, a political election around here. So it's really interesting to look at um, what we can do to, start thinking about problem solving by actually listening to people who aren't standing on the same side as us.
0: Yeah. And it's difficult because as you said, like, well, I'm relating this to another podcast I was just listening to today. There are people who want to have dialogue and who want to have a conversation even with people they don't agree with, but that's not what gets like retweeted. Um, Yeah nuance the quote from this other podcast was nuance does not get passed on um it's not as like
4: catchy yeah.
0: for like a news headline or something
1: yeah for some reason we we pay more attention to the things that that shock us than the things that soothe us um which is really interesting
0: yeah why, why are humans
1: like that i don't know
0: well i mean that totally makes sense and actually Connects to the you said you were listening to the episode I did on hope, and the previous episode before that was about fear and about that just kind of how our nervous systems work and fear being a really automatic response that we've evolved for survival, but it's sometimes maladaptive. Um, we don't need to get too deep into that because I think
1: sounds like you've already covered it. Though. Why would you uh, I'm gonna have to go back and listen
0: in my uh the worlds that I travel in, like that concept is also kind of beaten to death. Like you always (laughs) hear people talking about like, oh, we've evolved to run away from the tiger or fight the tiger, but that's not always helpful in our modern life. It's like everyone always references that. Now that we've kind of contextualized this conversation around dialogue, um, which I use that word to put an emphasis on speaking and listening with the goal of mutual understanding, Um, kind of contrasting with debate, which is where you're trying to like prove your adversary wrong and recruit people to your side, which can be really tricky and difficult, especially when you don't have like trust between people. Um, Um,
1: That's really interesting because I've been working with my students to prep for some debate because we're, you know, middle school, we do a lot of work on persuasive reasoning, but we don't talk a lot about ways to reason that aren't necessarily adversarial and how do we, um, either it's assumed that we already know how to get along with other people and listen actively, or it's just not something that the standards focus on as much. It's just-
0: yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I would love to see there be standards around like, like state standards around like empathy, like, and perspective taking, um, as well as critical thinking, like yeah. critical that, thinking is important, but.
1: <laughs> I well, know. I mean, it's interesting because there are some standards that are about, um, you know, examining a piece of literature or a piece of informational writing and finding the author's perspective in it. But then most of the speaking and writing goals about what students ought to do are about either simply presenting information or um, sort of adversarial persuasive writing that I think we all remember, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember that being kind of something, because um, I to share more about myself, which I've mentioned in other episodes, but say it again, that I have a big background in nonviolent communication. I've been studying that since I was a teenager. And um, I remember kind of struggling when I took like a critical thinking class because it did focus a lot on how to prove your point and not so much on um, just understanding where people are coming from. Yeah.
2: You know, it just, it takes all parts of a school district to work well together. You need a good superintendent and, and their staff. You need a good board. And then of course you need excellent teachers and families to invest in that process.
0: It takes a lot of collaboration between a lot of different people.
2: It does. People with very different backgrounds and very different experiences.
0: Well, that kind of leads me into my next question, um, which before we even get into the specific topic, I wanted to explore with you today. um, As you know, the name of this podcast project that I'm doing um, for my master's degree uh, as my culminating project is Dialogue Dilemmas. And I'm guessing that working with all these different people, you have probably uh, dealt with some different dilemmas and that this idea of there being dilemmas related to dialogue is not a totally foreign concept. Um, Would you like to speak a little bit about your thoughts on dialogue specifically within local politics?
2: Well, uh, I think uh, I was really struck by a letter to the editor yesterday where somebody said, when I was here at Chico before, it was this wonderful, loving, uh, safe community. And then I left and now I'm back and I'm shocked at the difference. And um, this context has been mentioned uh, quite a bit actually in the retrospect of the pandemic, the fear that a lot of people experience, the isolation, um, it seems uh, the conflict driven speech that uh, the past president uh, used a lot. So it seems that many people have sort of lost faith in the idea that they could talk to someone with a different view and actually have an exchange rather than uh, a set of accusations. And I even see it in my own family. So it's a a very dangerous place to be as a society, much less an educational institution, because progress is usually made through the exchange of ideas. I don't know anybody who has all the answers. Um, That would be a colossal statement to make. So that is so Part of the time you go looking for someone who might have part of the answer that you don't have or maybe even a different framing of the idea than you had so that, you know, you can come up with different solutions.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like uh, in your experience, if I understand correctly, there's sort of been a shift away from that. Um, within the Chico community?
2: Well, uh, I think it's bigger than the Chico community. I think it's nationally. But you do see elements of that. um, Oh, you must have been to a 4th of July celebration, right?
0: Yes. You mean locally or in general?
2: Well, anywhere. And what do you do for 4th of July?
0: Um, I mean, the classic ones when I was a kid were like, there'd be lots of food with fruit salad and pies and, um, barbecue and fireworks at the end of the day.
2: Right. So the context of fireworks is what? Why have fireworks?
0: Um, I'm not sure, I guess, cause it's celebratory and exciting, but maybe it's also supposed to remind people i don't know if it's supposed to remind people of like the revolutionary war
2: well that's a good point that you know because the star-spangled banner goes back to that and the fireworks the lights up the sky is is kind of a context for that i doubt very very few student age individuals i think think of that as a reflection back on a war that's you know over 200 years ago Um, but the other aspect of it is when when there's something dramatic like a bang and a you know explosion sound and then all the colors and stuff everybody's attention gets riveted on that Um, and so when people use inflammatory language it may have the same effect everybody's attention gets riveted on one thing and not on the context because for you as you stated the fireworks were the very last thing that you put in your list of memories for the 4th of July but actually most places the celebrations start in the morning and they go all day until night the fireworks are just the last piece right
0: Mm -hmm. it's the climax of the day
2: Yeah, the exclamation point. So I think we're in danger of getting so wrapped up in uh, explosive language or dramatics that it's really hard for people to take in the whole conceptual framework of what we're trying to deal with.
0: Yeah, if I were to um, like try to say what I'm thinking you're getting out this metaphor is like there might be a time in in politics including like local politics to have big impassioned speeches or something but it needs to be balanced with other things like um like if you're just doing that all the time then um there's not time for reflection and exchange of ideas and other aspects of the political process Now let's get some background on how the Chico Unified School District has been responding to the pandemic and some of the effects that it's had on different people in the school community. I found that by asking each person I talked to to give me their take on what had been going on recently, I got some different pieces of the puzzle and was able to put together a more complete picture. To focus on the specific topic of like virtual versus in-person instruction, I know the board, or I have the impression the board just recently voted to retain an AMPM model through the rest of the school year. And then I have the impression that the plan is to return to full day in-person instruction in the fall. Is that correct? Or is there anything you wanna to add to that?
1: Um, I'd like to add a little context to the first half because um, we voted back in February to stay in the AMPM model for the rest of the year. Uh, there was a lot of community um, engagement and a lot of frustration because it was represented to a lot of members of the community, especially to a lot of active parent groups. We were going to vote again uh, in early April last week. My gosh, it was only last week. Um, But that was never actually on the agenda, a vote about that. Um, We just had a discussion about, hey, we're in orange tier now, and the state did change the uh, distance for masked students, you know, their distance requirement down to three feet. So should we look at that? And we, in the end, decided not Mm -hmm. even to have a discussion about about increasing the in-person time because it just didn't make sense, given what the complexity of the school system and what was working for students at the time. So a lot of people said, oh, we're going to vote on it again. And they got really angry when they feel like the rug got pulled out because we didn't vote. But that was never the plan. The plan was just, hey, let's take a look at where we are now, um, give ourselves some context for what the state is doing, and then if anybody wants to bring anything else up about maybe changing our system, we can do that. Um,
0: yeah.
1: we just, just not even start that conversation.
4: So um,
0: thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So, cause yeah, I did have the impression it was like, um, a reaffirmation of what had already been decided, but it sounds like it, it was sort of a reaffirmation, but it, in like, not in the sense of revoting on it, but just thinking about revoting on it and deciding, no, we're just going to stick with what we already decided.
1: Exactly. Um, And and to your other point, we didn't at the last meeting, we didn't agree, but it's definitely the my understanding of the position of everyone in administration and the boards and the board, sorry, that we are in fact, gonna, we're expecting to reopen completely um, in August at our normal time. My only real question is whether they're going to be masks or not. I think pretty much everything else is probably going to be just as we, hesitate to call it normal, but I mean, more or less normal.
0: Compared to this year anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. So I know the board just, I think recently, they originally voted to retain an AMP model through the rest of the school year. And then I think the plan is to return to full day instruction in the fall. And then there was recently another discussion about that that, where you decided as a board to not change that plan to kind of stick with the same plan. Is that correct or... Are there any other details you want to
2: add? Well, if you go back, actually, the original motion to do AM-PM was taken in July of 2020 based on what the state was setting up as tiers. Uh, because we all came back from spring break and found ourselves uh, very, very suddenly pushed into no school except online. So that was an enormous switch. I mean, you went through it too as a university student.
0: Yeah, we went totally online.
2: Yeah, everybody did because that was the state order. Um, the, when the state had set up a kind of tiered platform about what might be able to happen, at that point we had set up a plan to reflect those tiers and voted on that and that was back in July. And then in February, um, as some of the metrics about the caseload and the uh, contagion rate and the amount of hospitalization space available in Butte County, then um, we reaffirmed that we would stay in AM, PM. Uh, at that time. So the students had been in that model since October. Um, We had as quite a surge, as you know, from Thanksgiving and Christmas and, you know, people traveling. So February things had started to uh, drop back down. And there was a new guideline that was issued. It had been six feet. And the new guideline was four feet. And uh, again, I've been in facilities related to education at every level uh, since uh, 2003 uh, at the state level. And I had been involved earlier than that with campus. So the, there is not a single publicly constructed school, whose classrooms were built on the context that there would be only 20 students in them. Uh, Most of the public schools, the classroom footage is is dictated by the Department of Ed. um, And it's based on the assumption that as grades go up, as kids get older, you can put more kids in a room and they'll be able to learn. So, uh, you know, TK is, is of course very small. Um, that's in the 20 to like 22, 23. And then first grade is still relatively small, but um, you're, when you start going up to fifth, sixth grade, you know, now you have, might have 28 kids in a classroom. But that was classrooms built on the idea that these students could be um, back to back, you know, that, I mean, they could be close to one another. In fact, a lot of the furniture had kids sitting at curved tables together um, to do shared projects. I mean, that was very typical educational uh, procedures. Um, The kids really benefited from that. Um, so when suddenly it had to be four feet separate and it had to be, you know, measured and it had to be maintained throughout the whole time they were in, in a school setting. Now you dramatically dropped the number of kids that could be in a classroom. Uh, and, or you also dramatically change the furniture structure, um, you know, now you needed individual desks again and you needed to be able to uh, keep them separated. So we felt that the amount of uh, disarray, not just for the teachers, but for the students, uh, because the way we had set up AMPM was that the teachers worked the full day. They weren't, quote unquote, only working a half day. But they would have one group of students in the morning and then typically they could have a, another group of students in the afternoon but some teachers those students were online they were online teaching um, some of them they were having part of their class zoom in just like you and I are doing now but they're teaching to the class in front of them and uh, for a lot of teachers, that became really difficult. How do I respond to this student's individual question when I've got other kids right in front of me and I only look over at the student usually after I've finished something or whatever. And we did have an online academy that we had set up and it just dramatically had jumped. Uh, Families that were very, very concerned about elders in the household or people who had immune deficiencies, you know, compromised systems uh, who were afraid to have their kids go to school and come back with an infection. Uh, So uh, they they were just online all the time. Um, So you're, you, you know, you're bicycling, so to speak, uh, all of these different factors. So we decided feedback from teachers, feedback from um, administrators, uh, some parents, uh, some students, we decided that the most effective learning model would be not to disrupt the learning model that had been in effect since October um, and just finish the spring semester. The, The meeting that happened at the beginning of this month, April the 7th, there was a group of parents who thought um, that they represented the majority and they were demanding that we go full time, but the board never took up that vote. Um, and So they never reconsidered it. it. It was basically settled. But the interesting thing is we surveyed all the secondary students. So junior high, high school, of the students filled out the survey and a very high percentage of them, over 70% of those who filled it out, uh, and my numbers are a little fuzzy right now because I don't remember the exact number. They wanted to stay in AM, PM. They felt like they had already adjusted and they didn't wanna disrupt their spring semester anymore. Some, Some of them had jobs, you know, they were just, and, and sports were coming back. So they were going to have sports and they were going to have extracurricular activities. Um, The other aspect of it is that um, the teachers and the staff, the majority, a very strong majority of them were in favor, just again, finishing, finishing off spring semester so that everybody could continue in the routes that were functioning. Uh, The, parent survey was only completed by uh, like 39 percent I think of the parents and then of that group that answered the survey a majority uh, about 55 percent wanted to go to full day so mathematically you're talking about a relatively small percentage but really the context is that We had started uh, small uh, tutoring groups for students who had special needs. Um, We were uh, working with the federally identified special groups. And so uh, we were getting the federal money and we were spending it on the furniture that would let us have the distance aspect uh, in the classroom in the fall. Yeah, you couldn't order and get it overnight. I mean, that was a very complicated uh, process. But we were also, the air filters were all changed. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of work that was done.
0: Yeah. Trying to adapt.
2: Yeah. And the state itself made an interesting change. And this change they just formally announced, which is um,
0: the three, four feet to three feet one.
2: Well, that, that change happened right before the 7th, April 7th meeting. So that's what got some people very energized. Well, then we don't have to worry. We can just go back the way we were and have full day. But the change that the state made besides saying you could do that was a change that was focused on what kind of testing would happen because that was, the other aspect of, um, that was the other aspect of what was happening, which is that um, the whole country knew there was learning loss and everybody was trying to figure out how we could help kids. I mean, I would say literally almost every student had learning loss because going online wasn't a particularly welcome change that we all had to deal with. So um, we were doing small group tutoring to try to help students catch up. The state made a decision that the way they would have to administer state testing was going to be probably remotely that it wouldn't be comparable to the last time we had state testing. Uh, So they had skipped entirely uh, to 1920. Um, So this would be, a break, you know, a pretty big break of what had happened. And um, the only test that's used, my grandkids are here, the only test that's used for any purpose beyond an internal uh, snapshot is the um, 11th grade test. The 11th grade test is used for college admission, and that test will still be given So we will do that, but the other tests, which go between third grade and eighth grade, those will all be based on internal assessments that we always do. So the student will have that, the parent and teacher will have that as a informational source, but 11th graders will be able to take their state test and use that as part of their college admissions. So if,
3: if we kind of go by a timeline, you know, there was certainly a lot of pressure. Um, if we're kind of talking about locally, we're talking about um, Chico Unified. There's been a lot of pressure on Chico Unified
4: going back to last summer um, to, to get, to get waivers, to get
3: kids um, in classrooms. But uh that, that didn't progress, and, and actually, you know, the model that they put in place um, really would have allowed uh, in-person learning to progress beyond an AMPM model when the, when the county entered the orange tier, which happened last October, but that was when Geico Unified was just rolling back in person at all with the AMPM model. Um, so, I feel like you know that the the ball was really dropped there, and I think that the the pressure has has only intensified um, again as, as you move into spring term. Um, lots of pressure to to progress there, and the school board um, was really citing uh, a lot of logistical hurdles at the time, and and um. I think that those those hurdles could be could have been addressed um, by by looking to some schools that overcame it. So, so, the the CDC spacing requirements was probably one of the biggest things that we heard a lot about at school board meetings. And um, I, I reached out to our school, and, and I know a lot of people reached out to school board members um, regarding other schools uh, that. That are of a similar size to Chico to Unified. Like if you look at what um, Roseville Joint Unified High School did in January, they went to their health department and said, look, we can do all of this stuff. We can't make the spacing work because we don't have the physical space. So, so that's, that's a logistical hurdle. But is there any other mitigation measure that we can take? And lo and behold when they when they worked with the county they actually got approval to go ahead and proceed with full-time and and I, and I think that's a great comparison because what i've read in the chico er is you know you can't compare chico unified to orland and gridley and and all these because these are smaller schools and and i take issue with that on on a couple of fronts one one is that um yeah they're smaller schools but we're also a 20 plus campus so relative to the space that they have. They're really not smaller. Um, and then, you know, you can see uh, Roseville's a Unified uh, High School District is a, is a 12,000 or 11,000 student um, high school district.
0: Uh, would you like to share a little bit about just like what your experience has been with uh, how has the pandemic and the change in. Um, schooling, instruction affected your family?
3: Sure. Um, since we have time, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. And um, just like everybody across the board, um, school was taken away uh, from, from our kids, um, you know, last, last March. Uh, we left for spring break and never came back. Um, and, and, and I don't, I don't really fault any, any policymaker at all at at that time for, for those decisions. Um, there, there was some, so so much unknown. Um, nobody really knew how to make, uh, relative risk and, and value calculations at that point in time, because we just didn't know. We, we had no idea what, what the risks were. Um, so uh, I think everybody would, you know, pretty much universally agree that that what school kids went through, um, you know, from March through the finish of the of the school year, was uh, was not good. And, and I don't I don't have really any any blame to place place on schools for that at all because everybody just did, did the best they could.
0: Sounds like you have understanding that people were just trying to err on the side of caution at that time with very little information.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I feel like the the majority of this is really um, people judging what you know what what level of risk they're comfortable with and and their risk tolerance, and then and then making making decisions about their values based on that. Um, so when school when we started making, you know, plans for the return to the school year, um, I I would have liked to have seen a a big emphasis on really getting kids back in classrooms. And um, there were a lot of schools that did do that. Um, And I think that that's when things started getting a little bit – people started – Making some, making some decisions. Um, in fact, I, I know parents that, you know, drive their kids uh, out to Vina and
4: Lassen View out in Tehama County. And because uh, those, those schools, they
3: started making plans over the summer and they said, look, we see how important it is to have kids in school. Learning on a computer doesn't work for kids, um, particularly uh, the, the younger kids. You know, you talk about the, the primary grades, you know, first through fifth. Um, perhaps perhaps I'm digressing. I should, you, you asked for what we were doing.
0: Now, if you have more you want to say, please do. But I, I was wondering, I'm guessing that, you know, with your wanting your kids to be an in-person school, like ideally from the beginning of this past school year that we're almost at the end of that, that was probably, was that some combination of both wanting the positive benefits of them being in school and wanting to like reduce the negative effects of them not being in school? Would you want to speak to that? Or if you were on another train, please continue as well. If there's something else you weren't complete with. No,
4: no.
3: Let's, uh, I, I should, uh, I, will, I, will, I will stick to, uh, to what I've been asked. So the, um, our family, uh, we we were disappointed that our at the time we, we all of our kids went to Chico Country Day School. Um, we have a first, fourth, and sixth grader. So um, they started in an all virtual format, um, better organized than it was in the spring, but nevertheless not optimal. Um, it's very difficult to engage. Kids, I'm sure some kids, you know, we've heard about some kids that have that have really thrived in this environment. I don't, I don't think it's a, a lot or a majority of them. I think I think those are in the minority. And certainly, from I could look at all three of my kids and and say, you know, maybe with one of them it's somewhat doable. I still think that the that the negatives far outweigh uh, the the benefits. Um, and at that point in time, it. Was becoming quite clear. In fact, there's 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 great uh, literature published on relative risk ratios of of COVID mortality and morbidity in, in children last August. So um, then it starts becoming a value judgment. And so what happened with us is you know we we kept our kids uh, in their in their um, public charter school at Chico Country Day uh, last, last fall. And when Chico Unified Schools went to an AMPM model, um, our school also opened up to, um, basically a, a two cohort Monday, Tuesday, and then Thursday, Friday model. So my kids would go to school, um, in person starting in, uh, mid-October. They went to school for, um, two days a week. Uh, for about three hours, they they went to school from 8:30 to 11:30 uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then um, they would uh, go home. and Wednesday through Friday would be distance learning. And as far as my kids were concerned, uh, Tuesday when they finished school, they were pretty much done with school for the week, <laughs> and uh, it was weekend until until Monday. And our family was extremely fortunate because my mother-in-law is a retired school teacher. So we had this wonderful privilege of having my mother-in-law come over to our house every single day and do school with our kids. So they got probably what I would consider one of the best case scenarios you could possibly have. Um, The reason that I get so upset by how everything played out is that I realize when I look at our situation, I say, you know, this situation was way less than optimal for us. Um, It still wasn't as good as having kids in school uh, full time, but we had one of the best case scenarios that you could possibly have. So I just start thinking about, um, you know, single parent uh, families, you know, uh, maybe a maybe a mom who works a you know blue collar essential job at a, at a, at a gas station or something what does her what does her first grader do when she has to go to work you know it's it's uh it, it's terrible and i think that you can argue a lot about when things could have, could have changed, but I really feel like by January, by the start of the new school semester, mm-hmm. we had a lot of information about how it can be done safely. And there were a lot of schools that went back in the fall and they started publishing studies on it and showing that it could be done. So we had we had solid scientific data. Um, when school came back in the spring, we started having uh, a lot of conversations with administrators uh, at, at the school, uh, Chico Country Day School, and my wife and I both got the impression that things were not going to progress there because there was um, teachers that were uncomfortable.
0: With in-person, with full-day in-person instruction.
3: Yeah, and, and you know, they, they were they were doing on-campus learning, but they, they weren't comfortable progressing it. Um, and we didn't see it as really changing a whole lot. And so for us, we, we live right to, right next to Parkview School. And we said, we, we decided we really wanted to have our kids going to school every day. We felt like them getting up and having to go to school at eight instead of, you know, waking up on a Wednesday morning and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, we don't really have to do anything until X amount of time. And um, just that, that weekend feel when my wife and I are going off to work and the kids are thinking it's still a weekend. Um, we we actually wanted to just move all our kids over to Chico Unified so they'd go five days a week. But um, my my sixth grader uh, didn't wanna leave, so we um, we've kept him at, at Chico Country Day. Um he he had to get moved around uh, when he, when he was when he was younger. He actually he started a Chico Christian School, cool and that school closed, and and we went to went to uh, Neil Dowell And he he had been moved around a little bit when he was younger. And he we thought he's old enough to have an opinion, so we'll let him we'll let him make his choice here. Um, but we felt like at least having the kids go to school every day, the, the younger ones, um, that was that was helpful to them.
0: Yeah, because you were saying that, like, um, they kind of felt like school was done from Wednesday through Friday, but then uh, was it your mother-in-law was coming over? So was it, like, hard for her to kind of convince them that school was happening still?
3: Unless she was one-on-one engaged with them, um, it just, the kids didn't want to, they don't want to do schoolwork. In, in front of a computer. It's just not an effective learning medium. It can't, it can't keep them engaged. And I, I can give you, my, my best example I could tell you is, is my daughter who, who absolutely love, love, love school. She, she went to school, she started in kindergarten and was just having a blast with kindergarten, just loving it. The, the girl thrives on social interaction. She's, she is my wife's daughter for sure, so social in the peer pressure of wanting to perform, wanting to read the books that she's supposed to be reading at this age group, seeing what other kids are doing for her, that's what really drove her. So for her to go into you know a, a format of having to turn in cards on a computer screen, um, not, not motivating for her at all. She really, she needs that social interaction.
0: So now we have these two pieces, the idea of dialogue and this local issue. What happens when we put them both together? Of course, this can be really difficult because it can be really hard to listen to somebody who has such a different perception of the way things are than you do, whose experience is so different from your own. And some of the reasons for this are explored in the main episodes of this uh, season of the podcast. But without going too deep into that, let's just hear some of the different perspectives on how people are relating in the community about this issue and why. But I wanted to talk more about like how people in the school community, board members, parents, teachers, faculty are engaging with this topic just on the level of how is the communication going? Um, I have the impression it's been pretty contentious from the news that I've been seeing and social media interactions. Um, does that match your impression or are people maybe a little calmer in person?
1: Um, yes and no. (laughs) Um, so there are clearly some people who are really, really worked up. Um, there've been a couple of times when there have been, um, protests outside the board meetings um, mm. that were mostly a lot, of, a lot of yelling. And that was a little, um, you know, it was both really unusual for a local school board and a little frustrating in that um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of goodwill in terms of every board member, even the ones who disagree with each other really strenuously, um, are trying to do what's best for kids. And there's some honest disagreement around that. Um, And it was a little surprising to see how much, how much ritual there was. But on the other hand, people are passionate about their kids. Um, That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, some people worked up. Um, I'd also like to say that I think the, like you said, um, nuance doesn't get passed on and the the really loud and angry stuff is what gets retweeted. I think that a relatively small group of people um, are really, really upset about it and are managing to get a lot of uh, media space and time. Um, and I certainly don't want to belittle their frustration. But I also don't think, and I certainly haven't seen from any any data around the idea that it's something like a 50-50 split. I think there's a, a small group of parents who really, really think that what the board is doing is wrong. Um, there's a slightly larger group, I think, what the board is doing is right, and there's a bunch of people in the middle who aren't sure or who waver from day to day or on real, really on specific issues.
0: Yeah, uh, and they maybe see the complexity of it more. Yeah, and there's probably, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of parents who um, I can even think of people in my personal life who wouldn't fall neatly on one side or the other. Who might say, "Yeah, I see." My yeah. kid's struggling with being home. I'm kind of struggling with it, but like, it's also really scary to think about sending them back or we've gotten into this routine and I don't want to change it. And yeah. that more nuance is not what, again, like makes the headlines. Yeah. That totally makes I, sense to me.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not 100% sure that the, the board's position on this one is right. I mean, I voted for it and I think on the whole, I was convinced. But on the other hand, um, if we had ended up, if there have been a really, um, if there had been a move to send everybody back full-time, I don't think it would have been the end of the world. Well, clearly it wouldn't have been the end of the world, um, hyperbole. Yeah. But I think people would have made do. Some people would have been upset by that decision, sure. Others would have been relieved by it. Um, we really are trying to walk through a situation where there are so many so i do a lot of um i teach a class in, in game design at my current school there's mm-hmm. so many rules and settings in this situation that could be tweaked we do a little this and a little of that, um, that you're never going to make everybody 100 happy and it's really a lot of fiddly little stuff at this point in terms of what is the best possible outcome what weighs more than this um, and i if nothing else i wish people could just see that there really isn't any one right answer that's best for everybody
0: yeah there's just a lot of variables at play
1: that's what and I meant to say. you said it much more neatly than I did thank
0: no, you. it makes sense um I'm guessing there's some people out there who can relate more to the like game metaphor as well yeah. but um <laughs> and yeah you can't make everyone happy and so then maybe everyone's unhappy
1: <laughs> What's, uh there was some one of the old one of the founding fathers quote-unquote who said that uh a good compromise leaves everyone unhappy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm tempted to digress into, you know, all this stuff that I have like a background in, like conflict resolution, group decision-making about contract compromise versus like trying to find a win-win, but stay on topic. Um,
1: I I mean, I'm going to digress from your digression, but if you want to come in and talk to the board sometime, man, we should arrange that because um, (laughs) we could, we could use some tips on, I think communicating both within ourselves and that's probably true of any decision-making body, right? Like um, the upside of not having a, a tyranny is that you've got lots of voices and the downside is that um, making a decision that doesn't leave some members of the group feeling bad is really difficult.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And if you have any tips on how we can communicate with our, with our constituents better, clearly there's been some frustration around that
0: yeah, we could, we could talk about it more. I can, you know, do my best. I, I definitely, uh, think it's a difficult situation. So I don't want to like say like, oh, there's some simple solution. Just throw this formula at it. But, um, I'm trying to learn more about it myself right now too. So, cause that's the first step. Anytime, um, I have like some training in mediation, anytime you're going to try to step in and help with like a conflict, you need to learn about it and listen to different people first um, that are involved. So yeah, I appreciate you helping me understand because most of my understanding comes from news and then also just talking to a few parents. I don't know that many parents. So my impression from like, like I said, looking at like news headlines and kind of the interactions I see online are that this is um, like you said, like 55% of the parents surveyed. I know you said it was only 39% response rate, but um, it sounds like, you know, a little over half of those people who responded. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty close to half and half split. And I'm wondering if, is this as contentious in person as it is online? Like at the meetings, the school board meetings, are people pretty Upset, or is it a little more calm when discussing in person? What's your experience with that?
2: Well, um, no, literally in the state of California, no public group could have participation literally from the public in person, not the city council, not, you know, county board of soups, uh, not school boards. Um, that ban was just lifted partially. It a, was a really small lift at the April 7th meeting. So what people had done uh, was do demonstrations. And those were, those were pretty raucous. Uh, and I, I would say uh, raucous and, and negative outside because they couldn't come inside. And I think that's the coverage you get from the press also about city council, because they couldn't come inside. Uh, At the April 7th one, they could come inside Uh, a relatively small number of them uh, attempted that. And uh, until the, 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 the decision was, in effect, determined by the rules of order that elected boards have to follow, which is if it would take somebody who had voted in the positive to bring back an item for reconsideration. And when the board didn't do that, uh, then they got really upset. They had convinced themselves that that was going to be the topic. And uh, so they started yelling and calling out and yelling, uh, and then they left. So uh, that's the only time where they've been able to be in person. And so that was a pretty uh, strenuously negative vocal, I would say. Um, We will, tomorrow, we will have uh, the meeting that will look at fall planning. And that is focused on a full day and um, they will be able to attend. This is in the performing arts theater. So it's a a large theater.
0: Yeah. More space for people.
2: Right. Right. And so the, the rules from the state say that a maximum of 80 people could be physically inside. Now, I have no idea how many people will come to be inside, but that would be the capacity that we could allow.
0: It sounds like it's been really stressful for all the uh, the school board members um, just um, trying to navigate like parent expectations, often conflicting parent expectations, uh, students' desires, teachers' needs, and uh, state mandates?
2: Well, I mean, if you went back to something where education was featured as the highlight, you could go back to the 1954, you know, the decision by the Supreme Court to integrate schools. Uh, That produced a huge uproar in many states and tremendous public discord and disruption and You know, the military had to be involved. I mean, all of those extremes. Um, You had a much, much smaller issue around um, the bathroom use by uh, gender identity in some places. Um, But the context of... You know, people are very passionate about their children as we would want them to be. And sometimes what we have is people who personal belief systems about what their kid needs and their education uh, may conflict with the facts. So, one of the motives expressed by the move to have charter schools is really been diffused because it was sometimes presented as this is a way to get poor students of color into a better school. But if you look at the statistical data, it was extremely dramatic. It was another form of segregation.
0: I've heard about that that critique of charter schools.
2: Yeah, they were overwhelmingly uh, pre-selecting uh, families that were well-to-do, and that ended up with a population of students that were majority of white and or gay, Asian. Um, and then other students, you know, were left out. The, um, the state made a decision um, a year ago to, oh, and the other part of it was there was this for-profit aspect So you had um, parents who were paying these for profit charters, claiming that they were going to do more for their kid. But again, issues of the family's ability to pay, but also I think there wasn't any fair assessment of how valid that assertion was. When uh, the state outlawed in California, no more private for-profit charters, all of our charters are public. They all have to be under the edict of either a local school district, a county school board, or they can appeal directly to the state. And um, I'm pretty proud of Chico Unified because the move to charters for us started when we had a really severe state financial crisis. And we had to close three schools in a row. Uh, we had to close Forest Ranch. We had to close Cohasset. And we had to close, uh, my mind just went blank, Nord. And the in two of those communities, the community itself was so passionate that their kids had the right to get educated and be in their own community space that they formed charters. Uh, NORD was first. They had phenomenal community support, uh, support and they have been an extremely well-performing and accepted charter. Uh, Force Ranch was next. And again, tremendous community commitment. Since then, we've seen other charters come on board. But those two sort of blazed the way when the people in the community were willing to sacrifice, you know, their time and their effort to be able to revise the school. It's our school building. It's our school facilities. They have to submit a plan. initial plan to us and then every five years it gets reviewed but really it is a community that's absolutely committed to the education of their kids and um, charters and now Montessori is now a public and so charters can do a unique approach a unique philosophy that a larger school district can't do Um, and so they can serve a particular group of kids, uh, perhaps better, um, but they still have to meet the standards of the district that they're under and they have to meet state standards. And so at least in that function, you know, we're reviewing them. We have somebody who oversees all the charters and helps them out, gives them direction. So, um, That's probably the best of both worlds, that they get to have a particular philosophical approach or location, but they are still meeting state standards.
0: This mention of charter schools within the surrounding communities outside of Chico brings me to a question that I wanted to ask about how the size of our community affects the way that these conversations about local policies take place. It's interesting that you bring up these sort of outlying communities um, on the edges of Chico because I was actually wanting to ask about, um, this semester I'm in a class on rural and small school education. And one of the questions we started off the semester with was like, is Chico rural? Which people have different opinions on that, but I bring it up because uh, we've been talking about this idea that in smaller communities, even if people disagree politically, they still have to treat each other with more respect because this person who voted differently than you is like, they own the store where you buy your groceries or something, which I imagine might be more the case at like up in Forest Ranch or Cohasset. But um, how do you think this idea relates to Chico? Like, um, is Chico too big for that kind of effect, like within the the main part of the city or?
2: Well, I hope not. I hope, uh, and the reason I I say that very emphatically is, again, that original reason that I, first I moved my, my granddaughter that we had custody of, I moved her out of a school where she had excelled but only gone for kindergarten and into a, a private charter uh, was because of the attitude that was um, presented by that particular principal of being very combative with there's some a group of parents inside the school and Montessori the parents all really work together so I didn't give you the punchline for that year so I moved her before the day before school started the headline in the ER that year was nine children leave Chico Unified they were all from that classroom.
0: So this was a controversial uh, local issue.
2: It was a controversial teacher who I don't think administration was prepared to deal with or reckon with. And, um, and so I, I saw that as a very sad statement, then rather than being able to recognize that there was a teacher that was potentially causing issues um families just left you know and and at that point in time chico unified hadn't had nine kids leave much less all in first grade
0: yeah it was a lot smaller back then i'm guessing because this was at
2: 99 yeah it was a lot smaller so um Like I said, I've I've taught at Chico State since 1972. Um, It's hard for me to walk down the street or go into a store or, you know, something where I don't have some connection, visual, whatever, to uh, an individual. Um, And it it doesn't have to be direct. Uh, So the boys are playing Little League. And they had little little pictures on Friday and the parent handling the registration for the pictures goes, oh, my husband had you as a professor. And now her husband teaches at Chico State. And so that's what I mean. It's just kind of, you know, out of the blue. It still has that small town feel. Yeah. And her little boy. Went to kinder, went to preschool with mine, and so you know they're interacting and you know thrilled to death with each other. So the value of that uh, for me is that when students come to Chico State, and as you know, I didn't ask you where you're from, so where are you from?
0: I'm, I've lived in Chico since I was 13, but I'm from the North State and. My parents actually met here in Chico and sometimes I, I joke, it's not a joke. <laughs> I lived here as a fetus because uh, my mom actually got pregnant here, but they moved away to Orlando where I was born and then moved kind of different places in Northern California and ended up back here when I was 13.
2: Okay. So uh, that story of parents uh, meeting, connecting, you know, as students, as sometimes as employees, it's, it's a very common one because Chico is uh, the intellectual and the economic driver for a very large area. Um, and ironically, the vast majority of our students come from very different environments. They come from large urban areas. Um, and so they find that extremely unusual but then they really relate to it because you know people are more uh they're more friendly they're more casual you can interact with them better when they don't get that reception then it's really hard for them because there's nothing familiar uh you know where do i go to get my Hair done if an African American woman, or where do I go to get the food that I would get, you know, at my local? So uh, uh, sometimes where would I find the music that I would dance to, you know? So, so there's a an adjustment to make to that, but the college is very, I think, in general, supportive and welcoming. So not to have students here. And so now I'm not gonna blame it on you guys, but I'm gonna point out the value added that the students add to the community, not to have students here um, for such a long period of time um, because a lot of them left when they couldn't be in the dorms and stuff and didn't come back.
0: Yeah, people who aren't like from here, which is most of the population of the university.
2: Yes. So that left us. So maybe the students would be part of the fusion process in the community between students who are literally at the university and people who weren't at the university, but in their age range, you know what I mean? That there's a fusion of sort of, we can find something to share. And I think that that's something we we lost just by the physical fact they weren't here,
0: yeah, like losing connections between the community and the university,
2: yeah, and then you have um, people who again, the pandemic did this all across the country. they were afraid for their health, they were afraid for their kids, um, they got really angry about their economic situation uh, being impacted. Um, and uh, if somebody shot off a firework, then they might decide, well, that's what they needed to do too, that you know, more demands. and typically uh, more demands means less listening.
0: I hope this isn't too, uh, abrupt of a segue, but one thing I wanted to ask, um, taking a class this semester called rural and small school education in the education department. Um, and we've been talking about like, one question that comes up that doesn't really have a definitive answer is like, is Chico a rural community? Which I bring this up because there's also this idea we've been talking about that, like In rural or small communities, like people have to kind of band together, even if they disagree politically, because even if, you know, you voted for a different school board member than me, I still have to buy groceries from your store um, or you buy groceries from my store or whatever. So we are still going to treat each other with a little more like gentleness. Um, And I'm curious, like, does that play out here at all, or is Chico too big for that?
1: So um, to me, this strikes me as a question that I'm going to answer, not so much from an educational perspective right away, but from um, as someone who grew up here and then moved away and came back. Uh, When I was young, it it was definitely um, rural. We thought of ourselves as, uh, you know, a suburb of Sacramento, but far enough away that uh, you know, with the, I went to high school here at Pleasant Valley um, and there were a lot of a lot of ag kids, a lot of farmers um, mm-hmm. and a lot of empty lots and, and dirt roads. I mean, um, heck, the house most of my local family lives in um, was a an empty lot that I used to, you know, a big pile of weeds I used to play in when I was a kid. And then about, what, 20 years ago now it got developed. Um, so moving away. I, I went out to, to a big city. I went out to Portland. Uh, when I came back, I was really surprised by how much Chico felt like a city as opposed to uh, the small town that I had left. Mm. What uh, year
0: did you move back? Whew. It's okay if you don't remember. No, I'm
1: trying to think. Uh,
0: 2010?
1: Okay. 09, 10, or 11. One of those years.
0: Yeah. And it just felt really different, like more urban
1: wondered if that was because I came from an urban setting and I started to look for those things or if it was because we really had grown up so much. Yeah. Uh, certainly when I was a kid, we had about 45,000 people uh, in, in the city limits. Um, and now we've got maybe double that, I wanna say.
0: I think it's about double.
1: Yeah. So I, I can't think of Chico as, is there a good word for something that is in between rural and urban besides suburban? Um, because
0: I saw one word recently that I've been using. It's very jargony though. Uh, like non-metro urban. So urban, but non-metro, like it's not a metropolis.
1: I, I hear that. But on the other hand, urban always makes me think of skyscrapers or at least, you know, buildings that are taller than three stories. And we don't really have any of those in Chico. Um, it's, but on the other hand, it's, it'd be interesting to find a way to define that because we're definitely not the only city in this, in this position, right? Like,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: all over the West, no, not by any means, places are growing. Um, and it is, it is interesting because we've got a really sharp divide between people who view Chico as an urban setting and want urban type policies implemented. And those who, I mean, right. The, the quote blue, red divide kind of plays out in the same way across rural mm. urban it's a neat question thank you
0: yeah um one thing that like when i talked about um doing this uh, interview with my professor for that class is she was bringing up like how is it different even between the conversations the school board members are having in chico versus like gridley um, yeah i don't know if you know anything about like the differences within Chico versus other smaller neighboring communities.
1: Yeah, and the smaller communities around here definitely do have a lot more of that um, interconnectedness. And I think one of the reasons there is so much political frustration in Chico is because we've gotten big enough that not everyone knows everyone else. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a town like Gridley or Durham, it's really, it is your neighbors uh, that you are, voting for. So cussing them out because you don't like a decision they made about the schools has social repercussions. I mean, um, and in the sense of the size of the school, we're definitely um, more in line uh, with with the urban districts. I mean, we're far and away the the biggest Northern California district. And whenever I do trainings uh, with entities about how to be a board member, um, it always surprises me how in terms of students, we're just one of the largest districts around period uh, outside of the big cities. Um,
0: like anything North of Sacramento, basically. But, right.
1: And even there, because Sacramento has a lot of districts that are uh, chopped up into, you know, there's, there's Natomas and there's San Juan and there's a couple other down there. Um, whereas Chico is too small to have lots to, to have more than one school district. But um, too big for the school district to be really a community body. And I don't know if you, so before COVID, we had political issues also, it turns out. And um, we were in the process actually of switching over to a a district representation for the board where each board member would be from one of five districts around the city, kind of in the hopes of bringing some sort of community and um, connectedness to a geographical area back to the board um because about what was it two years ago now the the, uh uh, city council and chico switched over to the the district trustee system and we're yeah in the process of doing the same thing
0: i thought that we just switched on the last election for the city council
1: it's true but wasn't the process started it was like all
0: throughout last year i guess they were talking about it
1: so in COVID years it's been about three two or three years yeah right
0: time is distorted. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that totally makes sense that it's like, it's not big enough to have more than one district, but then that means you've got all these different schools and it's not very cohesive.
1: Yeah. I I know people personally who disagree with a lot of the things the board does and we have very, you know, civil discussions about it uh, because I know I'm going to see this person next week and the week after. Um, but some of the emails, uh, we get, from parents who I'm sure are not the people they appear to be in their emails. You know, they, um, they sing your eyebrows off. Um, mm-hmm. so it kind of plays into what we all know to be true, which is that people are not themselves on the internet. Right. Um, where yeah. some distorted loud version of ourselves usually.
0: Yeah. And, and like, um, we can really rile each other up like one of the episodes i did like the first official episode i did on the podcast was about emotional contagion and like social media and how um the emotional tone of tweets or posts or whatever like spreads between networks and that's actually measurable even um of course that happens in person as well Maybe like it could happen at a board meeting. I don't know if you've ever noticed like a wave of emotion kind of go okay. through a room, but it can just affect so many more people online um, than in person. Yeah, like spread more quickly.
1: Demagoguery and the internet. I think you got a book there,
0: <laughs> and it's not necessarily even intentional. I don't think. Um, I don't know. What do you think? It. Uh, I mean, maybe some combination of both, or
1: yeah there yeah everybody wants the best possible outcome right you got to start from 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 assuming good intent but um yeah it's interesting how quickly people i guess decide to choose sides at what point Mm -hmm. at at what point does somebody take the stance of okay i'm right this person is completely wrong and it's they become the other i it would be really really interesting if you could and maybe someone has done the research on exactly what it takes to push someone to that point
0: yeah i think there's a lot of different research on it some of it contradicting and um trying to kind of go through it like just one piece at a time and uh, see what we can figure out and how this is playing out in our community Unfortunately, as I think that anyone who's been following the local news probably knows, uh, not everyone in our community is assuming good intent on the part of others who are, you know, feel differently about this and many other local issues. And I just want to be super clear that I'm not saying this with judgment of anyone. There's a lot of different ways that trust can break down. Again, I've explored some of the things that contribute to that in the main episodes of this podcast. And we will continue to explore that. But I do think that the first step to addressing any problem is acknowledging it. So let's explore how that trust has broken down for one community member. I I think that really these, these barriers that we
3: have heard a lot about um, were, were convenient excuses uh, I, I think that there just wasn't wasn't a will to wanna to wanna make make things happy or to to make things you know progress with full time in person learning.
0: It sounds like yeah, there's some distrust that uh, the stated reasons for decisions were not maybe really the heart of what was driving those decisions
3: yeah I mean I mean they're, they're it's it's easy to say, look, um we we'd like to do it uh, but we can't because you know we've we've got this we've got this barrier here and and i I think that most people got really frustrated because you know it it was always something new um, you know it was it was teachers being it, it, when you come when you come down to really like how much risk is there' Well, we've got a whole bunch of studies showing that that um, school can be safely done uh, with mitigation measures, like wearing masks and maintaining a certain certain amount of distance,
4: um, yeah, three feet now. Um, they never really had good data for six feet. Actually, all the original studies that they did in Europe were based on
3: one meter. Uh, this is going all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and in the United States, the CDC looked at one meter and they said, well, I don't really know that we can, we can uh, tell people about, you know, 3.38 or 2, uh, whatever the conversion is. Um, why don't we err on the safe side and call it six feet? There wasn't really any studies to support it. Um, but uh, that's what we did in the United States. Everything was just six feet. And I think that was an unintended, I think it was something where, where they erred on the side of caution, thinking, what, "What's the downside? We're, we're, we're going to keep people safer." Well, <laughs> There's a very significant downside when you look at policymaking, and you're basing it all mm-hmm. on something that really wasn't that really wasn't studied. And and my my, you know, everything regarding COVID has been so politicized. Uh, it, it's gotten it's gotten very very uh, heated. And when I read. I've gotten away from reading news articles and just really wanting to read. When I when I read about COVID risk and about you know safety mitigation measures, I just want to know what do we know for sure? What do we know from science? Is there is there a peer reviewed scientific study on this? And I've gone and I've read a lot of the scientific studies that have that have been done, Um, and then. As you, read, as you start taking in news media, you start reading news stories, and you reread six different news stories, and you realize that the only information, the only solid information behind the six news stories that you just read were these couple of scientific studies that I read, and you can make six different stories out of it because they want to cite some, you know, they want to cite particular uh, from from, you know, a researcher.
0: I'm curious about something you said or kind of tying in a few different things you've said because like I'm a scholar, I consider myself a scholar of like conflict and communication within communities and groups. And one of the key aspects that I think plays a role in how conflict plays out within communities is the level of trust or distrust that goes on. And I heard you say that, you know, you didn't really have any problem with the decision to, um, you know, keep kids out of school in March, 2020 through the rest of that semester. Um, but then at a certain point, it sounds like trust kind of broke down and you weren't really trusting that what, you know, decision makers were saying was driving their decisions was really the case. Do you, could you say anything about like, how did that happen? Like, was there like a moment when you kind of started losing trust?
3: Sure, yeah, I, I, would, I would say that probably the biggest things were um, when uh, Duke University uh, came out with uh, studies of North Carolina schools that had started in the fall and um, as well, uh, there were some studies published in Wood County Public Schools out of Wisconsin. Those, those studies were both done, uh, they were wrapped up in December and, and, and published like late December, early January. Um, and they really showed that even in in communities with, with high rates of spread, like in Wisconsin, uh, this study was done, you know, really, really high uh, community spread rates. Um, and within school systems where they took mitigation measures, extremely low rates of spread. So it just showed that doing things like, like masking indoors and maintaining distance, um, the the risk isn't what we thought it would be. I, I think that last last spring everything was based on what we knew, which was the flu, right? So we knew that that the flu would would uh, would spread within school systems because that's what happens with you know historically with the flu. Um, school systems are are big drivers of of spread. Um, so we just had to assume that that could happen with this. We didn't know. Um, but I think once we got enough data, uh, so so for me, the breakdown of trust happened in, in January when schools were making their plans. And now they've had a whole lot of data to digest that they could really base public policy off of. And mm-hmm. they, they didn't. Um, they, they, let, they let fear drive those decisions. Um, and. Fear and conflicts of interest, really. Um, conflicts of interest coming from coming from uh, teachers unions is what I think. That, that's where the trust kind of broke down with with me. I, I feel like probably the two biggest things would be would be one what I what I just mentioned, um,
4: you know, demonstration, scientific literature showing it could be done,
3: and then and then two, you know. What I don't think we've heard enough of locally is we in Butte County have done a phenomenal job of vaccination, um, and and the this this the scientific research behind these studies. I mean, I, I I'm kind of I kind of like reading scientific studies. That's kind of the work. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist, and um, so you know, I have no 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 expertise in infectious disease whatsoever. Uh, but but I have a doctorate degree, and I know how to read research. So so when um, I did not think that they would develop vaccines as as quickly as they developed vaccines uh, for this, but when when they came out with the Pfizer and Moderna trials um, in December of last year, I read those studies. And I thought to myself, "Oh my gosh, that's that's the light at the end of the tunnel right there." I am shocked that they have the safety and efficacy that they have. I mean, this is this is something that I don't know is you know people talk about like to talk about efficacy data data of these vaccines, and they like to talk about relative efficacy, like saying that Johnson Johnson seventy six percent effective, and that Pfizer vaccine 95% effective, but w- what they're really talking about is, you know, the, the odds that somebody could still get COVID. Um, I think that the, the, the key take, the most important thing is, you know, how many people get severe COVID, end up in the hospital and die after vaccination? Well, in the trial data, uh, Pfizer trials was like 45,000 participants, uh, Moderna trial, like 40,000, so we had like 80,000 people, not a single person in the trial period died of COVID. None. I mean, super, super effective. And in Butte County, we got so fortunate that we had people, you know, like, like Kim Grossman, who donated $700,000 to get a vaccine clinic up and running and all the volunteers from Menlo Hospital that could come in and staff this thing. And we just crushed it on being able to vaccinate. And we decided that we were going to place teachers in tier 1B in the state of California. And there were teachers getting vaccinated in January. So to me.
0: Uh, so, yeah, so that sounds like is that part of the distrust of like, OK, um, this population is vaccinated. Why are they still not willing to um, be teaching in person?
3: That should have been a huge, huge pivot point um that when we it became evident that we were going to be able to get teachers in line and I'm totally for that. I do not want to want to make it sound like I'm I'm I think that was a bad decision or anything. I think that was great. So excited that we got we got teachers um right up to the front right behind healthcare workers. So, you know, my wife and I were in healthcare. We got vaccinated, you know, February, December 11th, I think was our was when we first, you know, got vaccinated. Um uh and teachers started getting vaccinated in January. And I think that should have been a huge pivot point because now what you have is a population of people who largely do not um, spread or have severe outcomes from COVID, that's the kids, uh, in an environment that is uh, easy to mitigate COVID spread, and a population of people, so these are the adult people that are were at a higher risk prior to vaccination, but now they are getting vaccina- vaccinated, um, all working together, that should have been a big time turning point right there, in my opinion.
0: So like with, uh, you're talking about Conflicts of interest with teachers unions and people, um, you know, teachers getting vaccinated, but then like uh, the district still not going back to full time in person instruction. And I'm wondering, has this whole situation like um, driven rifts between people who maybe wouldn't have before, like maybe teachers that like you or other families had a good relationship with and then has it affected like those relationships um, between community members? No need to name any names. I probably, you know, probably shouldn't name specific people.
3: Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, you know, I have uh, most of the conversations that I've had with teachers, and I have, and I have a fair number of teacher friends. Um, most of the conversations that I've had with teachers, uh, they have told me that they are very supportive of being back uh, full time, but that they don't feel comfortable saying so because they know that not everybody is is comfortable saying so. And it's become politicized. And so they don't want to speak up because they don't want to make enemies among their colleagues. And I think that is a terrible place to be in that, in that you feel like the opinion you have is too inflammatory to say out loud because you're worried about offending somebody else because it's something that has become such a, such a hot button issue.
4: Um, that's the majority of, of the teachers that I know on a, on a personal,
3: on a personal basis. Um, they say, yeah, you know, I, I really, I think, I think the kids should be back in
4: full-time uh, in-person instruction, but not everybody feels that way. Not everybody's comfortable with that. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that out loud.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that, that I imagine that was the case that, you know, you don't have, sometimes I think this issue has been presented as parents versus teachers, but I'm aware of, uh, parents who wanted their kids back in full-time and, and parents who didn't, you know, who, who didn't want to send their kids back to in-person instruction. And I, assumed that the case was also true with teachers, but then like you're saying, they're in kind of a different situation where it's like their place of employment. So if there's sort of a general trend in one direction, then people who disagree might feel uncomfortable expressing that in a way that a parent, you know, you're not risking your employment by just saying how you feel about the policy, um, or not necessarily employment, but your comfort at your workplace, um, that being said though um I yeah, it sounds like there's there's different f- perspectives, but that some people aren't feeling comfortable expressing theirs um, at the job um, as far as like disagreement between um you know parents and families, have there been any uh, families that you've communicated with that have a different stance and how how has that affected relationships in the community as well like are you able if you know families who feel differently are you able to still see where each other is coming from or
3: yeah absolutely I, I've actually I've actually uh sought out um families who who liked who, who were okay with all the decisions that have been made locally. Um, I have a, I have a,
4: a, a few friends that um, they said, you know, I think the board has done the
3: best that they can uh, with a, with a tough situation, and you're not going to make everybody happy. And I think they've done a, a pretty good job. Um, and my, my interactions, you know, with them were, were that, you know, I, I of course told them I totally disagree with them. they friends. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've actually, I've actually, uh, sought out, um, families who, who liked, who, who were okay with all the decisions that have been made locally. Um, I have a, I
4: have a, uh, a, a few friends that, um, They said, you know, I think the board has done the best that they can,
3: uh, with a, with a tough situation and you're not going to make everybody happy. And I think they've done a a pretty good job. Um, and my, my interactions, you know, with them were, were that, you know, I, I, of course told them I totally disagree with them. Uh, but, um. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, I, I really, I really wanted to to understand because far and away the majority of people that I know are people that have families, you know, similar age kids. So elementary school age kids, and they're at the end of their ropes with it. There's, there's really, there's to me, I see like, I see like three categories. I see, um, elementary school families who saw the writing on the wall in fall, and they said, we're getting the heck out of here. We're sending our kids to Notre Dame or, uh, you know, a, a charter school that's going full-time, or we're driving our kids out to, to Vina or Gridley or somewhere else where they can actually go to school. So they just went out, and I think that's one of the reasons why you didn't see the vast, a huge, huge number of parents getting really fired up about this because a lot of them that were, that these are the people that would be really involved. They saw the writing on the wall and they said, this situation is hopeless and we're out. So that's, that's one group. You've got another group where, and this is, this is where most of my friends that, are, that you know have felt okay with the decisions that have, that have been made. Um, they said, you know, it, it's COVID. It's nobody's fault. They're just doing the best they can, trying to trying to balance risks. Um, but they were all in, in kind of situations where uh, they either had like one stay-at-home parent um, to begin with, anyway. So they really kind of adapted at the earliest at the at the beginning of this thing to say, "Hey, this is going to be a long-term thing, mm-hmm. and we're going to do a you know we're kind of going to do homeschool." Like like in healthcare, what I've seen a lot of. Uh, you know families that said we cannot take our kids to school for two hours. We can't take them to school for and then come back in two hours and pick them up. Um, we just have to homeschool. That's it. They just have to do all their all their work at home. And so they've adapted and they've resigned to this is what it is and there's nothing we can do about it. And then you've got families that are overwhelmingly the, you know, kind of, kind of either lower socioeconomic and are not going to be, and are not going to be speaking up because they're, they absolutely are just trying to survive with their heads above water and their kids are not doing well at all. And I I think we've, there's been a lot of talk about that. The mental health, the suicide, uh, rates of, you know, depression, anxiety among these kids. It's a tragedy. Um, That's, to me, that's, that's the biggest thing. That's that's where, you know, as a public school district, if you want to emphasize and, and talk about um, equality in education, uh, you can have all the programs in the world and spend millions and millions of dollars on equality in education. But the fact that you let this happen, this overshadows everything. This this is going to be the biggest thing is going to affect these kids for generations because there are kids that have been home and not doing well at all. They're getting failing grades in school. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're, you know, it, it's, it's tragedy. Um, and also then you, you've also got, you've got parent, uh, families like our family, our family is two working parents. And so, it's been an enormous inconvenience. I see my kids suffering. We're not as bad off as the group I was just talking about. That's that's the tragic, you know, the, the tragic scenario. Um, you know, we've got a lot of privilege. We're, we're, we have good jobs. Um, not that it hasn't cost us a lot because my wife works per diem. She works. She sets her own schedule. And so having that pressure to be there and helping out with with school. Of course she hasn't, she hasn't worked as much. And she has really, um, I I see her get just really, really tired. It's like she'll go and see her patients and then she'll come home and she'll help kids with with the schoolwork and all that. And then she's going back to doing her work at nine o'clock at night, doing her documentation. And so I think that, you know, working families have
0: just, have just suffered in this. Do you feel like, um, you know, you said you feel like you can kind of understand where your friends are coming from who, who are okay with what's, you know, the policies that have been put in place. Do you feel like they understand where you're coming from? And do you feel like um, teachers and uh, like local decision makers, like school board members, empathize even if they're making the decision that you don't agree with do you feel like they empathize with the experience that um people are having who are really struggling with the decisions that are being made
3: you know at the at the um administrative and and school board level um i really don't know i can tell you that yes from my from my my interactions with my friends that i've, that I've talked to you about uh certainly um they yeah we 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 both you know, we've had an understanding through conversations. Um, that's that's all fine and dandy. Um, but I've I've had a pretty difficult time trying to trying to look at um, you know what leadership uh, other than maybe um, you know legal looking at it from a from a legal risk standpoint. Uh, if you're a large large organization. Um, why would you take on more risk? I would argue because it's really important <laughs> for kids. <laughs> not enough focus on the upsides on what, what we're, what we're trading. Cause I don't think anybody really knows what we're trading. Um, that data isn't there yet. It will be, um, but it's not there yet.
0: Is there a talking past each other that happens about how these relative risks and benefits are weighed?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, you know you, you, can, you can look at, you can look at data and, and say, you know, hey, look, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, children are not at high risk uh, for, for poor outcomes due to COVID. Um, there's a lot of talk about that um, in the media. Uh, there's certainly a lot of um, sensationalized reports which come from infectious disease experts because that that kind of helps i think bolster up if you have a news story about you know some rare complication of covid it really helps to cite an expert but we have to remember that expert opinion is the lowest form of scientific evidence on the hierarchy of evidence and i don't think that we should make policies based on you know reading a news story about some rare complication that you can have due to COVID.
0: So when it comes to trust and distrust within the community and whether this topic or other related pandemic issues have driven wedges between people, it seems like it's really a mixed bag. There is frustration, but people are still trying to maintain friendships even across different responses to the pandemic and to the school situation, and sometimes this can be hard. Let's see what Dr. Kaiser and Tom Lando had to say about this. Like those really attention grabbing headlines and the things people post online. um, They can really touch into like our, our automatic fear responses.
2: Or combat, you know, I have to fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the next stage, right? Is if you're afraid of something or you're just, reacting to it then we've we have these like biological mechanisms of like fight or flight that kick in and um and then it's almost like the whole community is feeling that in that state you have a large percentage of people kind of in that state of being reactive or maybe combative and like amidst that i'm wondering Have you seen any examples, like exceptions to that, where people are able to relate and empathize? Like, say, you know, you got two families where their kids are friends and one of them is like, I really want my kids back in school full time. And the other one's like, I don't. I don't want my kids in school full time. Are they able to still empathize with each other or has this pitted people against each other who wouldn't normally be against each other?
2: That's a that's a really hard question. And and so I live in the green zone, uh, so I'm surrounded by egg, and um, so my uh, neighborhood is is literally only four to six streets, depending on how you count it. Um, more people with younger kids are are kind of moving in. We're getting that re- turnover effect. Um, some of them have um, moved their kids to other school districts where they literally have to take their kids to that district. But that's usually because they have family there and they kind of want their kids to be able to hang out with their relatives. But when you think about that, that's partly this whole social isolation. Um, So if your kid doesn't get to interact at school socially, which is what a lot of parents, a lot of parents are worried about, then it kind of goes, well, is there a family place where they can go and interact? And so I know one family where the father of the child, he has a brother who has young children her, her age. And so after school she goes over there see so there she gets to socialize um the other family with young kids there they got moved to a district where the rest of the family is from and so they can go and you know hang out with cousins after after school Um, a lot of others are doing um sports you know like little league has started and swimming has started and for many families this is a tremendous sigh of relief because uh, all the childcare places closed and after school things were closed and so now they're starting to open up again and so they're like oh my gosh thank goodness now my kid can you know have friends and interact and and be sort of more normal um So uh, this is a really just a, you know, very slight casual uh, context. So I'm watching the seven-year-old play his game while the the parents are watching the five-year-old play his game. And the people behind me are talking and they're friends and neighbors. And the one kid is not playing Little League this year but she's come to support her friend. But the framework of it is they did talk about uh, the one family was very, very fearful of interaction until everybody has their vaccination. So that was a more uh, closed off family unit because, and I don't know the parent the, I think it was a grandparent is, is perhaps uh, more at risk or something. I don't know. But uh, it was just interesting because they were really glad to see each other. They talked about a whole bunch of things. They literally went out of their way to come and watch this neighbor's son play the game when their own son didn't get to play this year. So that was a very you know generous attitude. But then nobody was being confrontational. The issue of... The one family was saying, no, nobody can come until everybody's vaccinated. And the other family didn't have that strict a guidelines.
0: So they were talking about this kind of non-confrontationally, but it was coming up.
2: Right. Oh, yeah. It wasn't confrontational at all. But it was one family had a very strict rule set up by, I think, a grandparent. And the other family was, you know, looser. Um, What's interesting, now I've, I've had all my vaccinations and so has my spouse and, you know, our, our granddaughters, got they've started theirs, um, but nobody was wearing masks. But we are outside, uh, the wind's blowing, uh, nobody is, you know, in close proximity to one another, unless they knew each other. Kids are running around like crazy. So, it's really not an environment where it would be uh, a very contagious setting. But it also told you that people are looking for places where they could sort of have a more normal interaction um, in terms of being outside with their kids doing active things.
0: It sounds like, even though maybe the one family member, uh, or the one friend or whoever, um, was a little looser on their COVID protocols. The other person was still interacting with them. Like they were still having a conversation. It was outside, but without masks.
2: Part of it was there's, it was somebody other in the family who had the really strict rules. This person was just relating that they had to respect those rules, you know, from that family member. So but yeah, so it's probably not a direct, uh, I'm red and you're blue. It's more like, well, when I go home, I have to be only red or, you know what I mean, only blue because. So they could communicate. There wasn't, I didn't hear any repercussions. But, um, but there had also been obviously an effort by the one, the one neighbor to do something pretty special, to go watch your, your friend's kid play a game that your kid isn't able to play because of the red back home.
0: Well, that sounds hopeful that people are still, you know, maintaining connections. <laughs> yes. As far as, um, you know, people deciding to like take sides uh, really strongly, have you noticed like, this specific issue with the pandemic and what format to have instruction in or previous issues. Have you noticed that like pitting people against each other that wouldn't have been in the past?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and there's a lot to say about this because right before the pandemic, actually we were noticing a lot more. And again, I attribute some of this to, um, the volatility of national politics where we had a, uh, a local teacher in Chico Unified who was showing CNN 10 to their students and a band of parents decided to CNN 10, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know, the, the sort of kids version of CNN. And it's really just fact-based. It's here's what happened. Here's what people were saying about it. It's, it's fairly balanced and it tries its best to be objective and just pre- prevent event present events of the day. But we had a, a of parents who were just incensed that we would uh, allow a teacher to show CNN
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, because you know the president at the time saw them as the bad guys. Um, so, even before COVID, I think some of this was starting to take shape, and COVID has really just provided so many lightning rod moments to divide um, the school community. And it's not just, just parents versus the district, right? There's parents on both sides, there's teachers yeah. on both sides. Um, and uh, as always, there are teachers and classified workers and, and administrators um, in the middle as well. But yeah, the, the instruction conversation about whether in person, whether virtual instruction could adequately give students the education we are promising them, um, led to a couple of really interesting debates. And it was really nice at first, and it still is, to see how engaged parents have been and if there's a, an upside to all the the <laughs> um, vehement communication it's just that um, we have so much more parent engagement than i've seen in a long time um, because i don't know how far back you've looked or how much long you've been following the education thing here but we were using um a program called edmentum no ingenuity forgive me Edmentum is something else. Um, Ingenuity to provide curriculum um, as we were kind of getting teachers trained up on better ways to uh, do online learning. Um, And it's a really, it's an out of the box curriculum. It's just, hey, here's this piece, Mm -hmm. read it, do these online activities, and then answer some questions about it. Um, And it definitely didn't work for a lot of people, and it colored a lot of people's opinions about, oh all of online learning is going to be like this Mm -hmm. and we don't like it. Therefore zoom school is a bust.
0: Okay. So then that led straight into unbeknownst to the people who decided to try that out. It led straight into people having a bad taste in their mouth about online instruction when the pandemic happened.
1: And um, for me personally, that was really interesting because I uh, spent three years working at an independent study school where we used uh, the canned curriculum like that, along with a lot of um, personal one-on-one communication with our students. Um, and for those students who are going to be good at independent study, those kind of uh, curriculums are a really good idea because if the kid gets it, the student gets it, they can just, they can zoom in and they can, they can accelerate and they can really work yeah. at their own pace. And if they don't, then they've got someone to help them. But we had to train a lot of teacher Unified teachers about how to provide that support. Um, and as in the middle of the pandemic, I switched jobs from doing independent study to teaching in a classroom, which became, you know, over that summer, became Zoom teaching instead. Um, And we never used a canned curriculum at my current position. It was all teachers make up their own lessons and lesson plans like they always did, and then present them over Zoom, which was a whole um, different challenge. And I I'm kind of thankful I went through it because it really reminded me of what all of the teachers in Chico were doing at the same time and I think I got to bring that to to my conversations as a board member about hey here's what this really looks like from the teachers' point of view um, and here's what we can help we can do to help them make it better Though, um, so of course teacher training is not my job as a board
0: member. I wanted to circle back around to something you were just saying a moment ago about you got of course parents on both or all sides of the issue and teachers as well, because I think sometimes it can get oversimplified to like, um, maybe teachers want to stay with virtual or AMPM model for the rest of the semester. And the parents want full-time instruction, which as we were talking about is not necessarily the case. You, you definitely have, um, I mean, I know you definitely have parents all along the spectrum. Um, and then, and I, I can't say that I know exactly what that distribution curve looks like, but I know that there is one. Uh, And then I'm guessing that's the same for teachers. And even if it might lean a certain way, you definitely like people have their own personal feelings about things. And sometimes it can get a little flattened.
1: Yeah. And one of my great regrets is we didn't do a good job of selling some of the things we were doing in um, virtual education and in explaining what, what the upsides were. Um, A lot of teachers wanted to, move away from ingenuity very quickly and they felt very comfortable using technology to really create very deep, interesting uh, educational experiences that even go beyond, you know, the in the AMP model, you're only with a student for a certain amount of time
4: mm-hmm. and then
1: they have independent research to do or independent work to do. But there are so many great models and our teachers are such experts, um, you know, things like the flipped classroom where you might have your students go and do the reading and the research on their own and then come back ready to discuss it. I um, mean, you can still get a lot of really great academic work in, in a virtual um, part-time synchronous uh, setting. Um, And it it felt really frustrating to see how some parents and teachers both were so dismissive of what we could do um, with the amazing technology we've got. I mean, it takes me back to how To cell phones, Um, we have the ability to know almost anything you want, right? Facts are not a problem anymore. Every fact is out there somewhere. And we use it mostly to look at cats and argue with each other, right? Like um, with the amount of technology and interconnectedness we have, we should be able to teach anyone, anything, anywhere. and more of it is just, hey, are we going to try this? Are we going to come into this with an attitude of this is something I can do? And do we have the supports that people need as humans, not just as you know robotic learners, but as people with physical and emotional needs as well to make virtual learning really useful? And clearly, our outcome on that, uh, from that point of view, was iffy at best. We haven't done that as best we could, because no one knew what best looked like when the entire nation decided to do this
0: at once. I mean, of course, that's what we're all just like figuring it out as we go along. Um, I don't think any of us had a a plan. Um, And I, I mean, I think that can also kind of help explain um, some of the reactivity too. like, everyone's just so stressed. Um, And that's uh, actually the next episode that I already recorded, but haven't posted yet is about like, collective emotions and how we affect each other and it's kind of similar to emotional contagion but like you know like the group as a whole i'm really feeling being under a lot of pressure and stress and being more agitated and how that affects the way we communicate
1: <laughs> i'm looking forward to to uh hearing what you what you dig up on that very much cuz um yeah everyone is so Agitated and stressed right now. And I really think that once we're past that, if we can hold it together as a community and keep on looking out for each other, we've learned so much um, as teachers and administrators and community members in, in general about what it means to survive through multiple crises and how we can do uh, some of the things we're doing better, how we can shift systems to serve more people i mean already there's a push by a small number but a significant small number of people to keep some some version of the online school we're doing now because it works really yeah. the well for, for a small number of kids um, yeah so it's neat to see how yeah we've got a lot of strife but we're also learning a bunch of things we didn't know before about how we can do normal things better
0: yeah um I heard that too. And I mean, there's aspects of the pandemic and like, you know, I'm in grad school and there's aspects of doing everything online that actually worked better for me and other people. So I think it's great if that can be like a growth opportunity for like more differentiated instruction for the students that that does work for.
1: And we had um, a pretty good number of students at Chico Unified who were doing uh, some kind of vocational education, either CTE classes or work training, who went out and got jobs during the uh, second semester once uh, some retail things started opening up more. Mm-hmm. Um, and They were very loud about not wanting to go back to traditional because mm-hmm. they had a schedule where they had classwork on their own schedule, two hours of uh, you know guided instruction, and then they could do things like apprenticeships during the rest of that time.
0: Yeah, which is, um, they're also learning hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like I, real world experience.
1: Oh yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of, uh, the CTE push that's, that was going on before COVID happened. In fact, I used to be a, a CTE coordinator at a previous school, just helping kids find those opportunities. Um, so seeing that being able to blossom out of this is a huge silver lining. And...
0: Can you s- explain what that acronym is just Sorry. for people like me who don't yeah. know?
1: Uh, CTE stands for career and technical education. Okay. Um, for many of us, we Depending on how old you are, it might have been called uh, uh, vocational education, or uh, there were programs like ROP back when I was in high school. Yeah, um, and all that has kind of melded into the understanding that four year college is not the right path or the preferred path for all students. Because um, that was a big push when I was when I was in high school was hey, everyone could go to college and you can all become lawyers. Um, but the yeah. reality of the world is we don't not everyone's going to either get anything useful out of a four-year school or at least not as as, let me take that back a four-year college is not the best option for everyone right there's um
0: yeah people have their own like um aptitudes and exactly i think Um, it's tricky because it's not about saying like oh some people just aren't able aren't like smart enough it's like no like some people just have aptitudes that or better yes. learn
1: elsewhere or they just don't have the you know there are there are personality issues and there are things like um that have to do with people's abilities to say you know sit down and focus some people are really smart i have students who are super smart but also not very good at school because the way we do school is not the way that they learn or the way it yeah. really speaks to them in terms of um so educators are always trying to, to address that but in terms of getting people ready for life after high school, um, in the last five years, so there's been a really big push to make sure we broaden pathways so that students um, feel an equal amount of status, whether they are going to a four-year school or a two-year program or a six-month training program or right into a, you know an apprenticeship at a trade. Um, and looking at the, uh, looking at all that through a social equity lens in terms of how a four-year college has always been sort of seen as the, um, the gateway to the, the upper class and the you know, it's like getting your kids into a four-year college is sort of how you pass on this, this power status within, within America, right? Um, whereas, especially in other countries where um, college is free or uh, paid for in a different way, that's never been the case. Um, and seeing CTE and career training as a way to, to, to break that down and take it a, um, that particular power structure apart is really, really gratifying, frankly.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, uh, yeah, this virtual instruction option has made that more accessible for some people. Absolutely. So as much as the pandemic has made things difficult for some families and some students, it has been an opportunity for others. But as mentioned earlier by Dr. Kaiser, learning loss is certainly a consideration that it seems like everybody is aware of as a concern. And I'm wondering, like, as you've been, you know, working with this uh, virtual um, instruction or, and like limited hours with them, are you nervous about like how it might be for them when they go back to full-time, like reintegrating, um, like, or learning loss, or do you have any other concerns?
3: Um, you know, I, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna see learning loss across the board. Um, I think that's already starting to be documented. Um, you know, this, this entire generation of kids is going to be behind, but the unfortunate thing is that, uh, there's going to be a subset of of kids who are very minimally affected because their schools prioritize getting kids back to in-person instruction. Whether that was last fall or this spring, um, it happened. Their their schools had the will to do it, and they and they put it together, and they and they made it happen. And uh, those kids are back on track. And the rest of the kids, I mean, I know now here, here we are. Uh, we're just uh, less than 12 hours after uh, the Chico Unified meeting last night where they did vote to adopt a return to full-time in-person instruction beginning this fall, um, which, which was expected. Um, that's still about a span of 78 weeks from the time that they stopped offering traditional format instruction last March.
0: So it sounds like you're not just, you know, concerned about what your kids are missing out on right now, but also how they m- might be at a disadvantage compared to other students who had, whose schools responded differently over the past year.
3: Certainly. Yeah. It, and I think, you know, they're, they're to answer your question and know, more, more, uh, to the point that there will certainly be a little transition. Yeah. The, you know, the kids will not use to be in class for six hours a day. That'll take a little bit of, that'll take a little bit of getting used to, but it's not going to be, a, it's not going to be a huge ordeal. Not for my kids. My kids are excited to, to be back in regular school. They ask me all the time. You know,
0: yeah. Be around people, see their friends.
3: Yeah. Yeah. My, my youngest ones, they say, how come we can't have lunch and recess at school? So well, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to tell you it's because it's not safe, but we really don't have any data showing that it's it's because of the decisions that people have made over the last year. So, um, yeah, we're, I mean, we're certainly excited to to get back, but it's still a long way off. That's in August.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, especially when you're a kid. That is a long time. I remember how long summers felt as a kid. Totally different world. So regardless of what other stances the guests that you've heard today have on how instruction should have been given over the past year, one thing that I think everyone can agree on, so far at least, is that we want the best for the kids in our community, and it's important to attend to the unique needs of each learner. Here are some thoughts that each guest has on how we can move forward from here as a community. Do you have any thoughts on like what else people in our community, especially connected to the school community, can do to kind of uh, try to rebuild trust where there's maybe been distrust um, after this time period where there's been so much stress and conflict about how to handle this rapidly evolving situation.
2: I I would hope that parents, um, and I think a lot of parents recognize that their kid has lost progress in school. Some of it is about motivation because a lot of students found online only unattractive. Uh, They didn't, they, uh, I even have seen national cartoons where the uh the zebra just posts a picture of himself on zoom while the class is going on and he isn't there you know but the picture is there so you even have people making jokes about uh the lack of engagement so there is there was and is i think ongoing in part uh, a lack of engagement uh by some students Um, other students discovered strengths that they didn't know they had. And hopefully the parents and the teachers will be able to attend to those and increase them. For the students who had some learning deficits that got maybe increased by this, we are, like I said, we are running small tutoring groups, but there's going to be uh, summer sessions as well And I would hope that parents who thought their child had a particular area, uh, of need that they would, uh, you know, participate in that.
0: Mm, Yeah. I know at least one parent who I think, um, whose child is going to be doing that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I am hoping that they're going to be extremely enriching and, you know, the kids are going to be excited about it. I'm assuming and really hopeful that, uh, group, community, uh, physical activities are going to be able to continue. So the kids that are doing uh, sports or some other kind of uh, active engagement seem to be the most uh, content. You know, they have associations with the kids that they participate in those with. They have uh, a coach or coaches. Um They go and see other things because they have to go to, you know, do the games. Um, But this is happening outside of athletics, too. It's happening in different kind of competitions where sometimes the whole thing is on Zoom. But you know somebody now in a different place who thinks and likes the things you do, whether it's art or politics or we just had a team from Chico Unified win a, a cyber security contest uh, for the North State.
0: Wow, that's impressive.
2: I know. I'm like, holy smokes, I didn't even know, the. you know, but um, and it was a charter school, I guess, who won it last year. It was, it was Corbut. So that, that starts giving people other connections to people like them. Um, but I will, would really hope that parents um, don't continue to think that teachers aren't doing their job, but realize that education is it is a teacher-driven uh, activity, but it also takes community uh, investment in letting them see the students, how important it is. And letting them see different pathways. I mean, one of the things that we've known now for at least, oh, geez, I want to say at least uh, maybe two decades, is that learning is not a single lane highway. Uh, People drive all kinds of vehicles. Some are like in Porsches, and they're just zipping along, right? And others are meandering in a van. and. Pulling over to look at the flowers and then get back on and go over to it. But those different avenues of learning help us keep from being trapped in a traffic jam where you only learn if you were the front in the room. That's not really what we need. We need everybody's skill set to be tapped into so they can. Learn and show other people avenues of thinking that uh, you know maybe the Porsche didn't even have time to think about because they were going so fast. Um, so I think that's a really critical part. We don't want to pi- pigeonhole or streamline education. We want it to be a diverse, uh, multifaceted, multicolored approach because people will discover things outside of my vision and outside of your vision because they're learning in a different way. But, but we might need that critically uh, around the next corner. We might need it right now.
0: I've, I've heard this word that's gotten really popular, I think in the past like 10 years or so, of like differentiated instruction. I'm really happy to hear that be talked about because that wasn't so much of a thing when I was in um, K-12 and I've, yeah, I'm hopeful.
2: (laughs) I'm hopeful too, because uh, I have uh, one um, related child who had a speech impediment and, um, you know, got lessons uh, very early on. And the other child is like, could say dinosaur at two, you know, and then tell you what kind of dinosaur, and you're going, oh my God, because I didn't know what kind of dinosaur, um, but uh, speech is our most common learning deficit, and uh, the one that we have to have at every single school site, you know, it it's the number one uh, learning disadvantage, but We have people who become, I mean, I had to do speech in third grade because I wore braces. Um, You know, so that aspect is very, very common. But I was still in shock when the speech therapist said, well, it's hard work for them. And I was like, what? Yeah, it's really hard work them to articulate speech. I never thought of that before. Now, why I didn't think of it? Because it wasn't my issue. It's not, it wasn't the little one's issue. It was the next one's issue. So if we don't uh, allow ourselves to see a broader bandwidth, so to speak, we're going to miss out and we're going to leave some really bright articulate people behind who have a lot to teach us. I don't want that loss.
0: I think I remember some quote. I'll have to look up who it was from about like um, somebody saying I'm more, I'm not as interested in like the folds of Einstein's brain as the guarantee that there are people just as brilliant as he was who like died in the streets.
2: Well, in another way, another framework of reference. So you're doing a podcast and there was just a pretty dramatic coverage because it references one of our, we, our number one university in the CSU, uh, SLO, where, you know, 25 years ago, a freshman female was murdered apparently by a freshman male. Um, And now they've been arrested. Well, the person who brought the information to light describes himself as extremely shy introvert, but he started a podcast. And his podcast touched people differently than the investigation that happened by the law enforcement 25 years ago because it was framed differently because he, he didn't act like a police officer. Um, and so that's what I mean. I mean, we, we might not think very highly of a podcast. I'm not putting you down, but I think there are people, who are, Oh, it's just a bunch of noise. But we're seeing this kind of aspect of information that comes forth because It's being approached differently. And that's a tremendous value.
0: Since, you know, we are going back to in-person next semester, and hopefully the effects of the pandemic will continue to be felt less and less, both, you know, both the actual health effects and then the related policies. I wanted to ask, like, when there's been so much distrust um, between, you know, different groups of people and everyone's under so much stress, uh, during this time. And, you know, people have been negatively affected in different ways. Is there a way that in the community, especially the school community, that trust can be rebuilt between, um, you know, between parents, students, educators, and uh, administrators and elected officials?
3: I I think, I think people, um, you know, being involved, uh, really helps, Um, there There's a lot of um, and I, I know you you probably know a lot a lot about this stuff, you know, about um, the influence of social media on uh, people's perceptions of of you know kind of the us versus them mentalities. And uh, you know, for me, I, I find um, talking to people with different points of view uh, to be very refreshing. and um, really, I've, I've been really glad that, we've been able to, that I've been able to attend the last couple of school board meetings in person because that is such a different experience from watching it on Zoom or watching it on YouTube, which we've had to do uh, during the pandemic. I think that being
0: there in person um, to be, to be forced to listen to the entire conversation uh, helps make a more informed um perspective on on kind of how people come to the decisions. Yeah, that's kind of one of the that relates at least to one of the biggest challenges I think we face um with with what's going on is that there's so much that could be said about social media and the way that emotions and sound bites spread and people can kind of double down on positions and not really listen to each other. But if the remedy to that is to have more in-person interactions with her neighbors, but we can't have in-person interactions, then that's, I, you know, I just imagine that that has had a really big effect too. That is not necessarily quantified yet either, but um, hopefully that can start to change as we are able to actually be in the room with each other more.
3: I would say that that should change very, very quickly, especially with, uh, you know, vaccinating all eligible age groups uh in view county um i think that that should change very very quickly i would argue that it's it's relatively safe right now uh with you know just just a few a few reasonable precautions masks if you're indoors and uh you know or you know eating outdoors yeah yeah
0: well um thank you so much for you know just sharing your experience and perspective on this and is there any final thought you want to share before we wrap up here
4: No, I'm, uh,
3: thank you very much, Megan.
0: Thanks for having me on. So, you know, we were talking about like the community and understanding people are under a lot of stress and it's a difficult time, but you were also talking about like, you know, um, getting emails that send your eyebrows and stuff. Like, do you think that as things hopefully start to get easier, is it going to be, like relatively easy for us to have some grace for each other and be like, we were just going through a hard time or there's some wounds that are going to take a lot to heal from some of the real, um, you know, intense, uh, Um, interactions people have had about, uh, how to move through this crisis.
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think, um, a lot of it has to do with what intentions people are coming to these, uh, sort of conflict communications with the parents who really are frustrated because their work schedules are getting mixed up and they they feel like their kids aren't getting enough um, of school, whatever that means for them. Um, I think it'll be really easy for us to come together as a community, especially after school starts again as normal uh, next time, next school year yeah i don't i mean i know the board for the most part is really really looking forward to that and is not i mean we don't see i can't speak for all board members but the sense i get from them and what's definitely true for myself is that part of the job of being elected is to take flack when things go wrong um we are the voice of the public in education policy in chico and that means if you don't like what we're doing you have every right to you know express that displeasure Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of you know growing thick skin that, that comes with that um i hope that the parents once they see um how hopefully when we all come back to regular school they will see that our love for the students and our deep desire as teachers, administrators, and board members to serve students by creating an educational environment for them um, that will earn some of that, that that trust and that goodwill back. Um, I will say that I, I definitely think that there are some people who are coming to these conflicts um, with motives about gaining a voice in the community and gaining some political power. And I don't know how that plays out in terms of, um, will these divisions keep on being stoked because it's useful for, for some parties? Um, that's what really scares me is that, and I think it's a minuscule number of people. Um, and I don't even think they have a particular side. Um, I think there are people who find advantages in any kind of, of chaos and frustration and that collective uh, emotion that you were talking about. Um, so my big fear is that people keep on stoking that because they found a way to to be heard that they that they needed um, in being the voice for a group of angry people. Um, and my hope and my belief about the people of Chico as I know them, um, which is again, is, I don't know everybody, um, is that we don't have a lot of tolerance for people picking fights for the sake of picking fights. Mm. Um, but as you said, as we go from from more rural to more urban, as we grow and change, this is one of those watershed moments, right? We're not sure what it's going to look like um, on the other side.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it's a little scary and you have some hope based on previous experience, but also are recognizing that the previous experience may not apply because of the ways the community is changing. And it's just hard to know. It's like very uncertain.
1: It is, um, and across all those aspects, school and the city council, and some of the other big issues that the city is facing right now. I just, I would love to see some sort of community organization that was just based around bringing everybody back together, and um, placing some kind of a, uh, creating some kind of a civic virtue that was specifically about. Communication and active listening, um, and I haven't seen anyone really step into that space yet in a in a really big citywide way. But there's definitely a, a hunger for it. I, you know. Um,
0: oh, I follow, there is. Yeah.
1: I, I follow a lot of local politics and a lot of um, local social media, and I hear this people requesting that kind of thing all the time from both quote sides unquote. Um, so I'm hopeful that. Once we get through COVID, especially, and once we get through the school version of COVID, we can really look towards creating that that space to have those those conversations.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad to hear it, and I, I think that there is interest too because um, whenever I talk to people about this project, they're pretty much the response I get is that's so needed. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that there's a hunger for it too, even if people don't really know where to start. Um, because there's so much like interpersonal pain or distrust or whatever the case may be.
1: Well, yeah, it's really, it's so much easier to, to break communicative trust than it is to build it, right? Like totally. you call somebody a mean name once on the internet and they're not gonna wanna have a civil conversation with you ever. Yeah. Which a lot of people are learn- learning right now, I think.
0: Yeah. It's it's really tricky to break out of that um, conflict pattern and and do that, but um, I'm gonna keep trying. I hope we can all keep trying.
1: Yeah, I'm <laughs> definitely I don't want to oversimplify you, it. But spread this podcast around. Sound like
0: again. it's easy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Seems like a really neat, neat idea. It's a good reminder whenever I read those emails that make me feel really frustrated or belittled that hey everyone is coming to this with their whole backpack of previous life experience. And that more than, more than anything else that's even happening right now, maybe, it informs the kind of language they use and uh, the kind of perspective they take from, again, from a situation where everyone has the same set of observable facts, and we're pulling so many different answers out of it.
0: No, I, I appreciate you saying that because what I was gonna bring up is something I actually meant to mention and kind of hadn't gotten to which is like, do you feel like you can, and it sounds like you very much can like empathize with where people are coming from who disagree, or even the people who are like spearheading the recall effort.
1: <laughs> I have a, a five-year-old who had to do kindergarten um, online for the first half of the year. And now he goes two hours a day, four days a week. Um, And I am incredibly lucky that for uh, reasons that have nothing to do with our preferred social method, uh, my wife happens to be staying at home and not working. She just wasn't, uh, she was between jobs when the pandemic started. So um, we took a huge financial hit and decided to have her just stay home. And without that, I have no idea how my son would have, would have managed kindergarten. Um, But I also know that I love, I used to um, be very involved with the school that he's at. Um, In fact, when I worked for Chico Unified, one of my first jobs was as an aide for some students with special needs at Wildflower when they first, when that charter school first opened. So Mm -hmm. when Oliver started going there, when my son started going there, it was really, I I have so much empathy and love for the community over there that I would never I would never go into a conversation with them thinking they had anything other than this best interest of the students at heart because I've seen them do that. I would love for some of these angry and frustrated parents, once we have room for parent aids again, um, once the restrictions are gone to come in and see exactly what happens in a classroom and get involved and see how passionate everybody is about helping students become better people um, and better educated people and i think that if they did that and some of them have but but not all not even many i'd say of the people who are really angry um i think that would be a really good place to start in terms of kind of rebuilding that trust mm-hmm. is for everyone to, to get engaged in because now they, they have been right they've they've been stuck uh being a teacher or at least being uh the overseer of education for Half their kids' day when that's become been a real hardship for them. Um, come see what what it's supposed to be like.
0: Yeah. And Maybe there can be more appreciation for for that.
1: Yeah, and not just teachers for, are doing. And not just for the teachers, but for um, the entire system. Right, public education—the way we do it—is the last major social good that everybody agrees on, right? Like we don't do anything else as a community in the way yeah. that we do school. Um, for whatever reason, America has done a very good job of tearing down every other social institution. But to the point where one of my main gripes as a board member is that schools are expected to do everything, right? We are, the frontline medical providers and frontline healthcare providers and frontline food providers, and you know, access for kids to all you know, kinds of social and mental health resources on top of our actual job, which is preparing them to be educated adults. Um, and I think one of the things we see in all these conflicts is how untenable that is. To fund schools as if they were just educating people and then expect them to be the social hub of everything. Because once if you put all those eggs in this one basket and then school goes away, what so many parents are upset about is not, oh hey, education got interrupted for a little bit, but how many families no longer have access to someone who checks them for lice and asks them if they're having a good day and Mm -hmm. notices when they are you know crying over their their boyfriend or girlfriend or notices when they've got you know signs of abuse um and none of that should have ever been put on teachers as a full-time you know responsibility anyhow and I hope that if we take anything away from that it's that we see that and we need a much more robust system of raising kids
0: like more um a more diverse way to support kids.
1: Yeah, we need not just schools. Extra programs outside of the school systems for kids to look for mental and emotional and physical health and safety and growth. Um, and I really hope that that's something we can all agree on when this is over. Because while the call for more mental health funding um, is something that everybody agrees is needed in the schools, it's only needed in the schools. Because we don't As a society, we don't really believe in mental health outside of the schools, um, right? I mean, how many people's insurance as an adult actually carries real comprehensive mental health coverage? Almost none. I mean, it's it's minuscule. Um,
0: Yeah, these are all um, really deep topics that I think deserve their own dialogue, honestly. I'm sure you have a wide spectrum of perspectives in our community as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um,
0: I try to, you know, make my personal experience relevant to the podcast as much as possible and you know, having that experience and I feel like that I can totally relate to like parents struggling with uh kids being at home because you know, my roommate has a teenage child and um then my friend who said I can record my podcast at her place also has a teenage child and like um so I empathize and, you know, I can feel that stress that um, comes up for me when trying to do some sort of work from home while they're being, you know, there's a young person in the house who might not always be as aware of an adult's needs. And so I'm not advocating for any position here, but just saying I can empathize with parents who are going through that every day.
1: And yeah, out. It's just, it's been such a big shift for so many people to, you know, work from home and have your kids home at the same time. Either one of those would have been big. Trying to do them both. I mean, consistency is key for mental well-being, right? We we want to know what's gonna come next. And as a teacher, mm-hmm. something we do all the time. Hey, when you come in my classroom, there's gonna be procedure.
0: Yeah. And
1: every day you're gonna know I do this, I do this, I do this. And when you have a substitute, suddenly you're not doing, you know, your three welcome to class activities everything feels weird and strange and like, you know, that um, it's like the whole classroom has been turned upside down and people outside of class are the exact same way, right? Um, It's, you mentioned something about giving each other some grace earlier. And I, I really hope that we can continue to do that to understand that the people you're yelling at online have also had their world turned upside down and we're all kind of struggling to find a place to stand right now. And I think the, my, my big fear is that for some people that place to stand is going to be being really angry at, at the school system, um, no matter what, that's their new de facto. And I hope that's not the case.
0: Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I can tell that you're really trying to take into consideration perspectives of all sorts of parents and students and teachers. So thank you again. And i I think this might be a good place to go ahead and wrap up. Obviously we could probably keep talking for hours. There's so much, but uh, good.
1: thank you very much for, for having me. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. It's actually led me to a couple of places. I want to explore some more. So.
0: All right. If you've made it this far, thank you. I hope that you found this uh, material as rich as I did. I know it was a lot to take in, probably, and if you're somebody who has strong feelings about this subject, it might have been even harder because not all of my guests agreed on everything, so you probably heard something you disagreed with today. If that's true, I just want to encourage you to, you know, especially if you're upset and it's reminding you of various stressors you've faced over the past year, um, I want to just invite you to take care of yourself in whatever way feels good, whether that's taking a walk around the block or you know, talking to a friend or whatever the case may be. Or maybe it's writing a letter to, you know, your school board member expressing your feelings about a subject and whether you choose to write it in a way that singes their eyebrows off or not is up to you. I know I've written some letters like that in my day, Um, not to school board members, but other elected officials. If you wanted to share a response or your own perspective on this topic or any other local issue, Please contact me at dialoguedilemmas at gmail.com or on Facebook, Dialogue Dilemmas, or Twitter, Dialogue Dilemma, without the S due to a character limit, or even Reddit now. I'm on there under Dialogue Dilemma Pod, uh, not quite active on there yet, but working on doing so. I am currently, if you're listening to this in 2021, a master's student at Chico State, and I'm doing this podcast as my master's project and need feedback about it. If you would like to give me feedback, any kind of response, to this or any other episode, you can contact me again at dialoguedilemmas at gmail.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter, and all your responses would be completely anonymous. If you want to give me feedback that I don't use for my research, but just uh, that I can use for myself to take into consideration, you can also contact me and just let me know that. You can also find the podcast and contact me and find links to my social media pages at dialoguedilemmas.com. you can find all of the episodes that I referenced today with subjects such as emotional contagion, uh, collective fear, hope, and uh, collective emotional orientation, and other topics, and new episodes that will be coming out soon. I want to extend appreciation again to all of my guests for this episode. Kathy Kaiser, Jordan Colby, Tom Lando, and also to Matt Tennis, a other school board member who was not able to be on the podcast due to our schedules not aligning, but did connect me with Jordan Colby for an interview. All right, take care, community, and see you next time. <music>